0: What's up, you guys? Sean Fightful dot com Here with a name you know, Duke the Dumpster Drosy. You can call him Mike. He is the host of Road to Recovery. How you doing? Doing great, man. Sean, I appreciate you having me on the show, brother. Yeah, of course. I hit you up actually a while back and we were trying to make this work, and I circled back. I wanted to talk to you because I see you're talking to the people an awful lot these days.
2: Yeah, you know, it's kind of been... it's. Kind of my deal now. Um, you know, it it wasn't that way for a long time. I kind of disappointed I, I was on a self-imposed exile from everything wrestling for about twenty five years. Uh, you know, and a lot goes into that. I, I fell into drugs and all these crazy things. But now that I've finally come back, and the fans have welcomed me back with open arms, it's been amazing, and uh, the interaction has been great, and I'm having a blast now, just interacting with the fans and. And also trying to help people that are that are struggling through some of the same things I did. So yeah, it's been a blast.
0: It's been a great experience. Yeah, I was I was just cruising around on Facebook, and I'm friends with some wrestlers over there. And I saw your name drop there, and I was like, I got to talk to him. I, I've never had the pleasure or anything like that. And I know you, uh, despite uh, it being a couple decades ago, there's lots of lots of meat on the bone there uh, as far as Mike Drosy goes, and you mentioned your, your road to recovery from what I, I remember you did an interview with Hannibal and you mentioned your, your foot getting like severely injured and that kind of led you back down that path. But now you're helping a lot of people.
2: Yeah. You know, life has a way of humbling us sometimes and it humbled me severely. <laughs> and, uh, but it's all good, you know? Uh, yeah. Part of that deal. I, I, I injured my foot and I fell back into using the drugs again, uh, that I had previously left behind from the wrestling career. And um, it got real bad, real fast. And after a couple of surgeries and an infection, they had to amputate the foot. Uh, But now I just kind of look back at that as part of the wreckage of the past. Um, It's been part of the path that has brought me to where I am now, which is where I'm supposed to be Um, helping other people in recovery and kind of helping people do this deal that we call recovery and, 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 trying to help people save themselves. And uh, that's what we do now.
0: So I fondly remember your WWF run. You got signed there at a pretty young age, didn't you? Mid-20s, yeah. I I was about 25. That doesn't happen a lot these days even. Like You don't see a lot of people popping up on WWE main roster TV, 24, 25 years old, and, and there you were. How long had you been in wrestling at that point?
2: Um, let's see. I started working for WWF in 94. I started wrestling. I was a senior still in high school and about, I think it was about 1985, 86 is when I started training to be a pro wrestler. And I worked throughout the Florida independent scene back then. Um, and one day I developed the garbage man character. and, And then eventually,
0: like I said, in about 94, I went up to the world wrestling federation. So who was it that you spoke to who helped make that deal come together? How was that negotiation process?
2: It's a pretty, well, I don't want to say it's an infamous story, but uh, whenever I tell it, people are shocked. Um, I didn't know anybody up there. I didn't have any family up there. I didn't have any friends up there, really. I mean, I knew Luna at the time, and she was there. But um, I, like I said, I was wrestling as the garbage man, Rocco Gibraltar down in Florida, and I was putting together a lot of tape footage of my matches and stuff and i created this promo tape me and my brother put it together back in the vhs days there was no computer editing programs or anything we had two vcrs and we made a promo tape anyway long story short i was getting ready to leave drive across the country with a bunch of promo packs and try to get a job and i found out there was a tv executive convention being held at the miami beach convention center where i lived down in florida and I found out Vince McMahon was there. So I found out through a friend where I could find some credentials, TV executive credentials, and I put on a suit. I put on the TV executive credentials and I walked right in the front door of the NATpe convention. And I walked up to the WWF booth and Vince McMahon was standing off by himself drinking coffee. And I walked right up to him, I shook his hand, introduced myself and I explained to him why I wanted to wrestle for the World Wrestling Federation and gave him a promo pack and then I got the hell out of there and uh (laughs) he had J.J. Dillon
0: call me about a week later for a tryout wow so what was the tryout those dark matches that that happened and you were doing that under the name Rocco Gibraltar still correct
2: yeah I was still uh yeah I did two dark matches with Reno Riggins and I wrestled they just I think they just called me the garbage man but um yeah I did those two I think it was Bethlehem Pennsylvania maybe Scranton I'm not sure um and uh yeah they called me and said they wanted to hire me and then they changed my name to Duke the Dumpster Drosy
0: which is my real last name and and uh yeah that's how that's how it uh, went down basically you were pretty heavily pushed in, in those early months I mean I remember it was like 4 or 5 months you went unbeaten cuz I would always watch superstars and challenge and raw and a little bit of everything. And you were beating everybody. Uh, How did you feel then coming in? Like, as like I mentioned at that age and getting that push, I mean, you were beating everybody and you were also working with some people that weren't quite known yet. Like Chris Canyon and uh, Dwayne Gill, who we would know as Gilbert. Like you were working with a lot of people and beating Jeff Jarrett and Jerry Lawler on TV too. Yeah. Um,
2: you know they a lot of times they bring people in and they, they give you a real strong push at the beginning and uh to to establish you as a character and then um then they decide what they're going to do with you and, and they put me in a that that feud with Jerry Lawler that was the first thing and um yeah i mean it was interesting the first several months um i think the first match i ever lost was sometime in 95 it was green bay wisconsin tv versus bam bam Bam, bigelow yeah that was the first time the first time i lost the match i was like wow and i I didn't know quite how to take it you know you get spoiled real easy if you're not careful you got to keep your ego in check and sometimes that's hard to do but yeah it was just an interesting thing and you know then a lot of times i was putting over the new heels when they would come into the company and stuff like that but uh that's kind of how it works you know um I wish I would have gotten more pay-per-view matches,
0: though. That, I do wish. I did notice that after the Bam Bam match, there was, I don't want to say a little bit of a time gap, but it says that you wrestled one TV match in September, one in October. What's going through your mind after that? Because they're still having you win. It's not like, okay, Bam Bam beat you, so all of a sudden you're losing a bunch. You're still winning every match that you got until the beginning of 95, up until, like, WrestleMania season
2: yeah it's uh you know it was just it was different it was you know I don't I don't know something happened during the Jerry Lawler feud um I I don't know somebody didn't like something they saw or or whatever but we never got a pay-per-view out of that it ended on a Monday Night Raw match where I beat him by count out and Doink the Clown interfered and then he started a feud with Doink the Clown, where they infamously had the four little kings and the four little dinks and the whatever yeah. at the pay, at the Survivor Series. But, uh, you know, it never got me and Lawler never got a pay-per-view out of that deal. So it was kind of weird. Something happened. Somebody got turned off by something somewhere. And I don't know if I had done something or what. And that's the weird thing about the business is, You know, it could be anything, anybody, anywhere. You never know you step on the wrong person's toes by accident and it can change the trajectory of your career. So um, I think that had something to do with what happened afterwards, because then I didn't see another feud until my first co- two year contract was up and I threatened to leave. And I wrestled triple H after that, but up until then I never had another
0: feud other than Lawler. Yeah. You wrestled uh triple H on the free for all 96 rumble. And I love the stakes for that winner enters 30th. Loser enters first. Uh, you would work with him, at least on the, the house show circuit, for months and months after that. I know that you all right. even had a dark cage match, which I, I want to talk a little bit about. But uh, what was that like being told, hey, you're going to be on the free-for-all, which was used to sell that Royal Rumble show, which is a major thing for WWF?
2: Um, yes. At the time, I was ecstatic about it. I was like, because it wasn't just a free-for-all. It was we're going to set up this angle and you're going to go on to another pay per view with him. I was like, finally, I get to do a a pay per view singles match. It's not just the Royal rumble for once. Um, But you know, it's, it it was just kind of weird the way it went about, but yeah, we wrestled in a lot of house shows and we kind of went back and forth, you know, winning and losing against each other. And we were trying a lot of different things and it was always fun to work with, with uh, Paul because he was always willing to do anything, he, I mean, he busted his ass for me. I, he flew all over the place because I threw him all over the place. And <laughs> he never complained. He never complained once. He took all the bumps, and um, you know, I gotta say, he was he was he was a champ in that respect. He took them bumps, that's for sure, because dude threw his ass all over the place.
0: So. Yeah, and uh, you're not a small man, needless to say, and he's not either. He's a really big dude, and. I think that like at that time I was just like I had no concept of how big pro wrestlers were because I was seeing you two fairly close in size I, you know I didn't realize you're both gigantic people tossing each other around the ring and like you said he's bumping everywhere like yeah. take it taking the trash compactor and all that stuff like like that's that, power that slams press slams spine busters everything he took it all <laughs> So you all go to the Royal Rumble, and you've been in a couple Royal Rumbles. Uh, how exactly are those laid out? Who, who goes and, and tells you this is when you're in, this is when you're out, and kind of lays all that stuff out for you?
2: Pat Patterson. Pat Patterson sets those up. He sits everybody down. Usually it's in the catering area, and you have, he'll have like a big white dry erase board, and he'll give everybody the, the order that you're going out to the ring. Then he will tell you when he will say, Okay, you then you go out of the ring after you see this wrestler go out, and he and he tells you who's gonna throw you out of the ring. That's basically how it works. It's like what number you go to the ring, and then basically what number you go out because you watch to see and you go after a certain person. And um you may make sure the right person also uh, that throws you out of the ring. And and that's how it works. And then the rest of it's just a big old mishmash in the ring and people goofing off and making each other laugh
0: basically is what it is and ribbing each other. So I know that they had diesel and Kama eliminate you pretty quickly in 96. Were you out there when Steve Austin accidentally got eliminated? Was that around the same time? Like, cause he's mentioned that a few times, like he was supposed to be in the final four but it, it got messy, and he had to look up at Sean and be like, hey, I'm out, buddy. <laughs> we can't do it. <laughs> I
2: don't remember. I mean, I kind of remember that happening, but I don't remember what year was that. That was 96. Oh, so that was the year I got, oh, yeah. that was uh, the year Yeah, got I remember there was, yeah. Yeah, there was some, you know what, though? The, the funny thing about stuff like that in the wrestling business is the boys in the back are very skeptical. We're like, all right. Was that a work or was that a shoot? <laughs> so we always <laughs> we are always very skeptical, so we were unsure and I think that was the approach that the boys that was the attitude that the boys in the back had about it. We we're like, yeah, 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 they were, they're trying to work us and the fans, but um yeah, I do vaguely remember that happening um, I, I didn't
0: I didn't remember that he went out out of order though. Yeah, and uh, the year before you spent a little bit more time in there. they probably don't have it down to like a second. It's probably just a general general time that that you're in there yeah
2: and some people take longer to go out before you than they're supposed to (laughs) you'll be sitting there and you know like you're you got to get out of there before a certain number of people are in the ring or they're going to start setting up spots with the last four people but the guy that's supposed to go out before you is still just lollygagging around for more airtime and he's not going out yet or taking his time so you know you just kind of
0: guys, people start yelling at each other. Get out! Get out! So, <laughs> so you, did get pa- pa- you did get a pay. You did get a pay per view match with Triple H the next month, and eventually your hair gets cut off. I remember that was an integral part of of the Duke the Dumpster Drosy character. How were you feeling about that? Getting your head buzzed?
2: Well, the way that came about was, I, you know, the whole Triple H thing came about at the end of my two year contract because. I was really frustrated with how they were using me. They were just beating me with any new heel that came in. And one night, a new heel happened to be Steve Austin, the ringmaster. Mm -hmm. And that was the night I took a stand and told Bruce I didn't want to do it. And uh, they said, you don't have to do it. And of course, I explained to Steve why, and he understood, and we became good friends after that. But it, it was at the end of a contract. So I think... You know, they gave me the Triple H thing to appease me and get me to re-sign the next one-year deal, right? Um, And during that time, I also told them I wanted to change. I wanted to turn heel. I wanted to change my appearance. And so when we were in the discussions about what we were doing, Jim Ross came up with the idea that since I was talking about wanting to cut my hair and change my image, Triple H could cut it off as part of the angle. Sure. And it was interesting to me because I was like, yeah, I said, I'd be willing to do it as long as I get some kind of revenge at the end. I mean, I know I'm not going to beat him. I knew I wasn't going to beat him because he was in the click. (laughs) And I knew I wasn't going to cut his hair. So I said, you know, if we creatively think of a way for me to get a good comeback out of the deal so I'm strong and then we turn me heel, then I'll absolutely do it. That's fine. So that's why I agreed to do it. but. You know, he cut my hair. We did the match. He beat me. It's interesting. He beat me on the, he beat me on the free for all with the brass knucks, and that got reversed by Gorilla Monsoon. But he beat me on the pay per view by hitting me in the face with a garbage can lid. I just guess Gorilla
0: Monsoon <laughs> wasn't watching the monitor that night. Well, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> if you remember, Vader had beaten Gorilla Monsoon up. Like was it that night, it was it was a couple weeks before that. Vader beat the crap oh. out of Gorilla Monsoon. Oh yeah, he splashed him. I forgot about that. Yeah, hey, I remember everything from that era. I I, wow. I would tape everything and then just rewatch it throughout the week. We didn't have YouTube back then. Right. But, but I remember actually thinking like back then, it's like man. I, I remember specifically what you said. Like he had that reversed, but there was no authority figure. Roddy Piper, kind of. He was an interim there for a while. Yeah. But, Oh man Such But yeah and then they did that and, and after the Triple H deal They just kind of put me right back to
2: I didn't turn heel And they yeah. just put me right back to kind of putting over heels On TV And um, you know And at that time I was using a lot of painkillers I had gotten hurt In one of the house shows wrestling Triple H Pretty bad In Meadowlands I fell out of the ring like I flew over the top rope yeah. And missed the top rope so I just fell a free fall right to the cement floor and landed on my butt and uh, couldn't move for a couple of seconds. And um, it screwed my back up really good. So the the painkiller, uh, the taking of pain medicine really got really bad after that. So I became irrational. You know, I was pissed off, unhappy, complaining a lot. And I think they just kind of got sick of me. And one day Vince sent jerry briscoe to come tell me i could go ahead on home uh it was right after wrestlemania 12 actually but yeah that's kind of how that went down
0: had you signed signed a new deal at that point
2: yeah i had just signed a new one-year deal and they said go home i still had eight months left on it (laughs) and i just went home first i said you need to release me from the contract and of course briscoe was like yeah yeah okay yeah whatever and then i went home and jj dylan called me he was still talent relations and i just told him i said you know i'm just gonna hang out at home for a while i needed to kind of relax and get my head screwed on straight and i didn't care about the contract they didn't have to release me or whatever they yeah. weren't paying me anything but
0: yeah i was gonna um, ask because no, they weren't there, there were no, downsides then right
2: yeah there was there was no money man very few guys were making any decent money A lot of us were just living on $200 draws every night, you know, because the houses were so low that there wasn't much money being made. So if you didn't take your $200 draw, you would get less than $200 in a check. So some of us learned to look and see how many people were out there. And judging by the numbers, we would know whether or not to take the draw on how much money we would make in a check if we didn't. And we knew they didn't have the balls to send us a negative invoice (laughs) for (laughs) for
0: ten bucks or something. So, yeah, that's how bad it was for a while. So uh, did they did they end up releasing you from the contract, or did you just write it out?
2: I just wrote it out. So as soon as it was up, I tried to go to WCW, but they they, uh, they didn't have any interest. Plus, I was just still really messed up. So.
0: So like, how did how did those talks go? They just didn't return them, or just... Well, I just
2: showed up at some shows, and then JJ Dillon got with me, and I ended up actually getting a tryout match. I had a dark match. Uh, I don't even, I don't remember the guy's name. It's on YouTube, but my name's not on it, so it's hard to find. It's on my Facebook page. I was oh, wearing wow. a singlet on a dark match at, at Nitro, but um, the interesting thing was is. WWF let me come back in for a tryout, too. They made me try out again, but I expressed interest in going back because, you know, of course, Steve Austin was taking off. Money was being made. But I tried out for both around the same time, and that was a mistake because then neither one wanted me. Oh, wow. Austin even told me before, and he goes, you better pick one, man, because these people are vindictive. They'll get pissed off, and then neither one of them will
0: call you. And that's exactly what happened. Was there ever any talks with Paul Heyman or ECW or anything like that? That used to be a place you would see people pop up, if not WWF or WCW.
2: You know, at that point in time, I really had no interest in going to ECW. It was, it was still, even though Cactus Jack had gone through there, Steve Austin had gone through there, and a lot, but a lot of other guys. Uh, a lot of us that were already in the WWF really didn't view it as an option of where we would want to go because the rumors were that guys were having a tough time getting payoffs and they were beating themselves to death. And, um, I was really just sick of the business at that point, man. I was, I was really just kind of over it for a while. And I just wanted to get away. Uh, it was, I felt dirty being in that the wrestling business during those years. Um, you know, they lied to you. And if you're not good at handling rejection, you're going to have a difficult time. And in that respect, I was ill-prepared for it. Um, you know, there's a lot of things I wish I would have handled differently if I'd known more back then, but it happened the way it did. And and like I said, fast forward to now, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be now anyway, but yeah. it was just crazy times. And yeah, I never really thought about going to ECW. I was, I was already beat up enough and taking <laughs> terrible amounts of drugs. So... If I would have went there, I probably would have
0: killed myself or overdosed or something or fell off a building. Who knows? You wrestled an awful lot overseas, though, didn't you? Like, I, I want to say, like, 97, you spent a lot of time overseas?
2: Yeah, I went and did a tour for Otto Vons. Yeah. You know, uh, two Austria towns and two German towns, but each of those towns is, like, 30-plus days in a row. Yeah, You wrestle every night, yeah. So I did that full tour to, over there, um... Pierre was there, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, yeah. now PCO. Um,
0: uh, Fit Finley, Sabio, all new was the, I think, huh? I think Fit Finley was over there for a while. Fit
2: Finley was there, kind of, but he was also just about – he was signing with WCW. Uh. So he was there for Austria, and he was there for part of Hanover, Germany, then he left. Uh, Robbie Brookside was there. Uh, Paul New was there PN News oh. He he was a big name over there
0: uh, Rhino got his Grizzly. start there if I remember correctly uh, the, yeah, He He spent a yeah, lot of time went, over there Yeah and I wrestled him a
2: lot As Cannonball Grizzly um, Yeah there was just a lot of guys That were going through there or going back over there To rejuvenate their careers And kind of do something different You know uh, I had the pleasure of getting in the ring with Fit Finley uh, A lot of Saturday mornings before they did something called Kinder Care on weekends in the mornings. The Aww. kids would all come and we put on a little, you know, goofy wrestling show for just the kids and but before that I would get in the ring and Finley would show me some stuff. So it was always I was always willing to sit under that learning tree and, and listen to what he oh, had to course. say. And and sit sit with him at the bar having a few beers and listening to the knowledge and the experience. <laughs> uh I think that was priceless. But uh Yeah, Germany was a great experience, but then again, I came home, and I got crazy again, and, you know, I was just, I don't know, I was doing too many drugs, (laughs) so it just (laughs) fell apart. The wheels came off, off the
0: car, and it just fell apart, so. It seemed like you maintained a pretty positive relationship with WWF, even after you were gone. They kept you under contract, and even though they weren't paying you, but they brought you back for the tryout, and then you did the gimmick Battle Royal, which... I mean, my God, that was, looks like a ton of fun. How did they reach out for that, and what was your reaction?
2: They didn't reach out. I reached out to them. It was interesting. I was working for the company down in Florida that I wrestled for before I went to the WWF the first time, uh, Sunshine Wrestling Federation, who had then just become Florida Championship Wrestling, which was before uh-huh. it was a developmental place for Vince. Um, And one of the guys that worked through them came up to me one day and said, dude, they're doing a gimmick battle royal. You need to call somebody and get in on that. (laughs) And um, again, even working for these guys down in Florida, I was on a lot of drugs. (laughs) It was bad. (laughs) And it should have been a great, awesome moment, my WrestleMania moment. But in all reality, I was on drugs so bad, I was going to the methadone clinic in Miami. So I had to get extra methadone to take to WrestleMania with me so I wouldn't get sick. And withdrawals during the weekend and i barely made it i had to drink alcohol at the end of it but and i made it back home but it wasn't a great wrestlemania moment because i was in no condition to wrestle but thankfully all i had to do was walk around the ring and act stupid with a bunch of older guys that were you know nikolai volkoff screaming at the chic and you know brother love beating up jim Cornette, and all of us just goofing off and eventually doink the clown clothesline me out of the ring on the wrong side and twisted my shoulders out of place, but you know, it was WrestleMania and I will say walking out in front of sixty five thousand people was amazing in the Astrodome.
0: Yeah, I mean that's gotta be something that you'll you'll never forget regardless of the, the circumstances surrounding everything. Right. So uh after that, did you have ever had have any contact with WWF? I mean you were still pretty young at that point.
2: No. I mean I really kind of lost contact with everybody. That's when I really disappeared because I had gotten so bad that that company in Florida fired me. They were like, you know, I was just showing up messed up and drinking and on drugs. And it was just really bad. And it got so bad. It got to the point where all my money ran out. All my credit ran out with all the drug friends and everything else. And um, my body locked up on me and I couldn't move. I was in such withdrawals. And I had to go to the hospital. And they shot me up with morphine and told me to go to rehab, basically. And that's when my family flew me up to Tennessee to go to rehab for the first time in uh, 2003. But, yeah, it was during those years I was completely just off the map, off the
0: wrestling grid completely after WrestleMania. What was the turning point for you to make you say, okay, I'm done with all this? Even, even after the relapse that I've heard you mention due to your foot, What point were you like, this life ain't for me and I got to help other people know that this life isn't for them either?
2: People I work with now, I always tell them, in order for you to truly change, it's going to have to get painful enough. And the day that it was painful enough for me was when there was two sheriff's department investigators outside my house. I was living at my mom's house in Tennessee and um, I was on one foot. I just had my foot amputated. And I was calling a drug dealer who was getting pills that day at three o'clock. And I was getting ready on crutches to go out to the car to go to this person's house. And as I walked out, the the investigators were on the back porch with their badges out. And they basically told me, we have a sealed indictment to arrest you for delivery of schedule two and schedule three narcotics. Basically, they told me I was a, a drug dealer. But, you know, I started basically crying and saying, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a drug dealer. But, yeah, I was at that. Even though I was a school teacher by day, by night I was running around with all the wrong people to find drugs. And you get caught up in this counterculture of buying and selling drugs on the street to get what you need. Anyway, the day they arrested me with my feeble little mother sitting next to me crying was the day I realized it had to end. Um, and it was difficult. And, um, eventually I had to put myself in rehab even before I went to court because I knew I couldn't physically get clean by myself. I couldn't just quit. So I went to rehab and when I got out, I went to court on the charges. I pled guilty. As part of my plea deal, I went through a very strict drug court program. It's like probation on steroids plus drug treatment all wrapped up in one they watch every move you make you get drug tested all the time and but once I was physically clean I was done I was willing to do that time I was willing to do whatever it took and that's what I did I did everything they told me I went to meetings every night for a year straight narcotics anonymous I learned everything I could about recovery and I and I graduated that program with no problem at all in fact I did so well they hired me afterwards and that's where I work now, and um, that's what brought me to this place where it's become my passion in life. It's where I'm supposed to be helping other people, because man, I wouldn't, I would not wish that life on anybody, not even my worst enemy. It is such a cold, dark, sad, depressing, scary place that I don't. If I can help anybody get out of there, you know, I was just telling this girl yesterday, I've been to hell and back. A couple times and now I know the way and I feel like it's kind of
0: my job now to show other people the way out and that's what I try to do on a daily basis and it seems like you're doing well I mean the road to recovery show I always see you see you providing uh, positive words of reinforcement and all that I mean sometimes sometimes that's that's a learning experience and and your unique experience of going through that is, is something that you can cast on on other people yeah, plus the fact that a big part of recovery,
2: especially with substance abuse, but in any situation, recovering from any traumatic situation, a large part of it, when you make it a certain amount of time, it's important that you start sharing it and giving it to other people. Because then in turn, it comes back and continues to help you. And by me continuing to give it away, I keep getting it back and it keeps helping me even at this point and I'm, I'm going to be at October 2nd will be seven years clean and sober. So, you know, it's, it's been a few years, and I'm proud of that. And I'm keeping track this time. The first time, I didn't even keep track.
1: Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com.
2: Back of how many years it was, I just quit doing drugs and didn't think about it. But that was a mistake. So
0: So as we we kind of wind down, still a couple things I want to ask you about. I always thought you had one of the best punches in wrestling. And that was something that somebody brought up to me the other day. They're like, who's got the best work punch? And I was like, Duke the Dumpster Drosy. And they were like, I asked you that, like subtly thinking that, thinking there's no way somebody would mention Duke the Dumpster Drosy. How did you perfect the art of the work punch to the level you did?
2: Well, I would say, first of all, that Bob Cook probably has the best punch. Or
0: Jerry Lawler's got a great punch. He's got a great one.
2: My punch, my work punch came from two people. The guy that trained me, the Jamaican jammer, Bobby Wales. He was this Jamaican dude and he was real fiery and he would throw these big punches like this. And I started learning that way. But one of the earliest tours I did when I was probably 18 or 19 years old, we went on a tour of the Caribbean with these guys I worked with in Florida. And they had the likes of Tiger Conway Jr. and Ox Baker and Bugsy McGraw All of these old school guys, man, it was the most amazing thing. But I remember one day specifically, Bugsy McGraw pulled me aside and he said, kid, let me show you something. He goes, whenever you throw a punch, I always tell people, go from up to down. So bring them down and bring it up to down. And uh, that way everybody up in the high, high rafter seats can see it. Because everything you do, you've got to show it to everybody in the arena. So that really accentuates, boom, throwing those punches. And that stuck with me. Bugsy McGraw showed me that. And that stuck with me forever. And that's how I threw punches. Yeah. But I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I like that. I
0: thought I had pretty good punches. It was a very good punch. It was one of my favorites. And I also loved the trash compactor. Like, <laughs> I remember when I, I was little, I was, I was a smaller fella. Me and my cousin would wrestle I'd try to run up him and do a do a running head scissors, and he'd hit me with the trash compactor. He'd be like, "No, no head scissors for you!" And he'd drop me down. <laughs> how do you develop that move? Uh, how do you how do you settle on the trash compactor, that tilt a whirl power slam as a as a finish?
2: You know, it was that we were practicing in a ring behind a guy's house. Uh, the guy I worked with in the Sunshine Wrestling Federation way before I ever went to the WWF and we just we would just go and practice and goof around in the ring and think of stuff and do stuff and i remember there was this much smaller guy at practice that day that just took bumps from everybody and i just remember he was standing next to me one day and i reached and grabbed him and threw him up on my shoulder and power slammed him. and everybody was like ooh you know that <laughs> moment in practice when everybody goes ooh you know you're on to something good and i said Let me see if I can do that off the ropes. And I threw him off the ropes and he came running and I flipped him up on my shoulder and spun around and power slammed him. They popped. When they pop in practice, you know it's good. So, that became the finish move and it was called at that time I was wrestling as the garbage man Rocco Gibraltar and I originally called it the Falling Rock. Uh. And uh, and I changed it to the trash compactor when I went up to the WWF. But the problem with it was the guy you were throwing at it had to understand the leverage and, and how to flip and get up to your shoulder. Because a lot of guys were just used to taking sidewalk slams and they would hold on to your shoulders for dear life. But if they held on, they wouldn't go all the way up around onto your shoulder. So it was hard to teach some guys and they couldn't get it. So they'd get stuck. And there's a few matches you'll see on YouTube where it end in a sidewalk slam because they didn't know how to take it. The very first guy I wrestled was Mike Bell on Superstars, and he didn't go up for it right. (laughs) And it was taped, but I didn't know anything about redoing it so they could edit it. So I just didn't redo it. They were yelling at me outside the ring, redo it, redo it. And I didn't do it because I was just so caught up in the moment. It's my first WWF match. And uh, so my first match, I screwed up my finish
0: move. (laughs) I I was actually watching a match. Like, I I always go back and watch things before interviews, and I saw one. I specifically went to go look up the trash compactor, and I saw somebody getting side-slammed. And I was like, there has to be something to that. Yeah, that was a mess-up. Were there ever any that you recall vividly, and you're like, ooh, I got all of that one? (laughs) Man, um, there was... There was quite a few guys that took a
2: lot of pride in being able to go for it. Chris Canyon went up for it great. Um, Reno Riggins went up for it great. That's why I got hired because they they saw the best trash compactor you could see because Reno Riggins went up for it fantastically. Um, Dwayne Gill went up for it great. Barry Hardy used to go up for it great. Um, Let me see who else. The thing was, if somebody couldn't go up for it, I would just slam them and do the buddy... Buddy uh, Rogers, or the, I'm sorry, Playboy, I'm sorry. Buddy Rose. The Nature Boy.
0: Oh, Buddy Rogers.
2: Buddy Landell. Oh! Corkscrew elbow. That's (laughs) what I did. The corkscrew elbow I stole from Buddy Landell. That was my backup. So if you ever saw me do the corkscrew, it was because the guy couldn't go up for the trash compactor.
0: Were you excited to see Buddy Landell come into the WWF? It was like late 95? I I marked out for him. I marked out. He came and like, ah. That's good to know, kid. I said, "Yeah, I won't be doing it anymore." So, <laughs> I, re- I remember that poor man. They put him in there with like Ahmed Johnson right out of the gate. Oh, oh. they had him taking a Pearl River plunge, and I'm yeah. sure that I'm sure of all the moves Buddy Landell has taken in his career, the Pearl River <laughs> plunge ain't one of them. <laughs> yeah, that was rough. And also, yeah, I remember I, that I remembered him just randomly. I would watch that Saturday morning show, Mania. And then just one morning, it's Brett the Hitman Hart defending the WWF championship against Buddy Landell. And I was like, This is cool. <laughs> like Yeah. I didn't know who Buddy Landell was at that point, but I was getting to see Brett Hart wrestle him and I was like, man, this is a good match.
2: Yeah, Buddy's Buddy was always a great worker, man. He was amazing.
0: I I'm, i wish I we could have seen how that run would have been, but I know he got hurt like right after that. Like I think he slipped I was there when he ball. got hurt. What happened?
2: He was it was in front of a hotel. Um, It was on an icy day. I don't remember what town it was, but it was winter and it was icy and um, maybe like a Marriott hotel or something. But I, he must've got paid off for that because Mm -hmm. we were running up to the hotel and the ground was covered with ice, but the hotel doors were automatic and they opened outwards towards us and the door opened and just caught his knee just right and blew out his kneecap and his kneecap, basically his kneecap detached and fell down his leg. It was a shoot. And I remember the EMT guys showed up and they were like, they were looking around like, oh, this guy's just trying to get a insurance claim. And I go, dude, he's hurt. Look at his freaking knee. And uh, they saw his knee basically dangling there and they went, all right, we gotta get this guy out of here. He was just, it was bad. And uh, he was screaming, man, he was screaming in pain. So I always wondered if he got, like, an insurance payoff for that because it was a shoot, man. It was a real deal. It blew his knee out.
0: Yeah, it was it was wild because I remember Buddy coming in, and I didn't realize he was there for, like, a weekend because they yeah. filmed, like, five or six matches with him. They filmed yeah. matches for Mania, Raw, Superstars, and he did the pay-per-view with Ahmed. To me, I'm like, oh, wow, he was there for two months. No, he was there for a weekend, and the poor guy blew his knee out. yeah unfortunate how it happens man unfortunately sometimes never know so i remember last year you were advertised for chikara how did this come about you know i i just kind of started
2: this whole process of interacting with the fans especially on facebook and i built up a huge i mean my my friends list is just maxed out with all sorts of different people friends and family and fans From time to time, people would approach me and say, hey, would you be interested in working at this place or that place? You know, and I would listen and, you know, a lot of times I'd do it. They came at me with Chikara and um, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that, you know, because I knew I I knew what they were about. And um, Quackenbush, Mike Quackenbush runs it. And when I got up there, I was amazed how professional that dude ran his company. I mean, he he was like a modern-day Paul Heyman. He had them all sitting in the bleachers, all the wrestlers sitting in the bleachers, and he was going over the entire format of the entire show and telling them exactly what he wanted and everything, down to the emotion they should show at der- to certain points. He was in control of everything, and you just didn't see that anymore in any independence or anything. Um, so I was very impressed. But yeah, they brought me in real quick. I just did a real fast appearance in this that crazy battle royal thing they did. I went out and hit somebody with the can and threw a couple people out and then somebody caught me in an arm bar and I tapped out and then I was gone. And they ran me right back to the airport and put me on the plane and I went home. <laughs> <laughs> so just how, like that.
0: How'd you feel in there?
2: It was fun. You know, it was, it was interesting though. It was a learning experience working with a prosthetic foot. Yeah. Um, I had to learn to go up and down stairs without falling or getting stuck. I had to learn to go fall out of the ring without getting caught in the ropes because it happened a few times. I'd be dangling by one leg. Um, So it it was an interesting proposition, but it was fun. It was great to get back in the ring. Uh, And I had fun with it. How long had it? it
0: been for you?
2: You know, 25 years. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't been in the ring in so long. My gosh. That so, was from WrestleMania. Well, no, it wasn't, even, it wasn't that long. Let's see. If you call WrestleMania Gimmick Battle Royal, and then I did probably a couple of matches with the, the Florida company.
0: Yeah. Uh, so that was what, 2000? Yeah. 2001, 2001 was the, that, so gosh, probably 17 years. Yeah, 17. 17 yeah, years. that's about right. Man, it felt like, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, when that was your life for so long, I'm sure that, that being away from it, probably it just magnifies it. Well, uh, tell the people where they can find you now, tell the people, uh, where they can support what you're doing and support other people. Everything I'm
2: doing right now is based out of Facebook right now. We've been doing this podcast road to recovery. We call it the podcast with a purpose. We talk a lot about substance abuse recovery, but we also, we talk about any kind of recovery from any tough situations. And, um, it's, uh, live on facebook every friday at 6 p.m eastern time 5 p.m central uh we stream it from Streamyard and on to facebook live right now we're getting ready to move over to twitch and doing some patreon stuff um but i'm on facebook as mike Drosy. that's my private page that's basically public to everybody with all my stories and videos and everything um i I found you yeah (laughs) and i also have a duke the dumpster fan page people also join that um, I've got an Instagram, which is, uh, Duke, the dumpster official. Um, and I'm on Twitter a little bit, uh, under real Duke Drosy. Um, but I, am not really good at posting on uh, Twitter yet, but that's basically where I'm at now. And again, it's on Facebook and, and road to recovery every Friday at 6 PM on my Facebook page, Facebook live, this guy I'm working with, Avi Klein. He's also doing podcasts with the likes of Paul Roma, with Ray Lloyd Glacier, with uh, Dell Wilkes, The Patriot, with Bill DeMott, Hugh Morris, with Don Morocco. Um, hopefully he'll be bringing in some other guys, maybe Mark Marrow soon. Wow. He's got a lot of great quality individuals he's doing podcasts with. And they're not all wrestling podcasts. You know, everybody has their own uh, individual style that they bring to their podcast. And like I said, mine's about helping people in recovery and, um, we've had some really great shows. So come check us out, man. Yeah. Facebook live Friday, 6
0: PM Eastern on Mike Drosy Facebook page, Mike Drosy, Thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got to do this. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. No problem,
2: brother. I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a blast. Thank you. Until next time guys,
1: we're out